the digital transition. Digital Transition, a podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies, where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. Welcome to the Digital Transition, powered by Bond University's Building Information Modeling Program. I'm your host, Nathan Hildebrandt, and today I'm talking to Alexandra Bolton, who's the former Executive Director of the Centre of Digital Built Britain, and Mark Coates, the International Director of Public Policy and Advocacy from Bentley. Now, before I start my interview with Alexandra and Mark, I need to acknowledge our exclusive sponsor, Bond University. Now, Bond University are leading the way in BIM education in Australia through their Master of Building Information Modelling and Integrated Project Delivery course. Now, they also have micro-credential offerings, which were designed to meet industry needs after extensive industry consultation. Now, the design and structure of the uh, Bond BIM program was recognised internationally uh, in 2020 with a special mention for leadership in open BIM in education uh, in the professional research category of the Building Smart International Awards. So what I'd recommend for you today is to head over to the Bond University website via the link in the show notes to learn more about their educational offerings. Now, it's great to sit uh, face-to-face uh, with you, Alexander and Mark, while you're on your whirlwind tour down here on the eastern seaboard of Australia. And, uh, Mark, I saw a post the other day where you said you would be participating in 40 events and, and, and meetings while you're here. Now, that's that's quite a lot. And But today I thought I'd just, you know, off the cuff, you know, we'd, we'd sit down and have a chat and, and make it 41. But uh, today I'm looking forward to talking to you both about the Centre of Digital Built Britain and also Digital Twins. So thanks very much to you, Alexandra, and Mark for taking the time to sit down with me in this little gap in your day. Now, firstly, Alexandra, for those that are not aware of you, uh, here in Australia particularly, I know in the UK you'd be well and truly well-known and famous over there, could you tell us a little bit about yourself for our Australian listeners? So, yeah. Hi, Nathan, and thank you for having us here. It's, it's, it's great to have a chance to chat. So, as you said, I was the executive director for the Centre of Digital Build Britain for the last five years, and that's a socio-technical change programme looking at building information modelling. We ran the National Digital Twin programme and the UK's Global Boom programme. It was about bringing industry, government and academia together so that we can use data to make better decisions, so we can use data to make better decisions faster so that actually we can create those better outcomes that we want for people and the planet. I like the aspirations in that, and I, and I hope that we find that there's more people in this world that actually start to think this way. Now, Mark, um, we've spoken to the Rose, now we've got yourself and my other two thorns. Um, for those that aren't aware of you, mate, can you tell us a little bit about yourself as well? Yeah, certainly, and again, you know, thank you for making the time to sit and speak with us. So my background is a, a, an XQS, worked on numerous uh, national and international infrastructure projects uh, throughout the UK, both from power, water, commercial, and, and obviously infrastructure. Uh, and I work for Bentley Systems, as you said, and have done for over the last three and a half years. And it's really about knowledge transfer. What does good look like? You know, not a particular system or particular piece of software. It's very much about the way of working, that education, that leadership that actually helps 
us as individuals and, and you know, project delivery and governments actually achieve a good return on investment financially, but also with a strong ESG factor now required. And I think we'll touch on that a little bit later as well, because a lot of people within the architecture profession specifically, uh, a big call for action at the moment has been for sustainability. And yet, right now, the Institute of Architects, they don't really even recognise that, that these digital tools are that actually provide that assistance to actually get there. But Alexandra, now we're moving on to, I guess, the Centre of Digital Built Britain or the CDBB, which it's known. It's something that's probably foreign to people here in Australia because we have such a disparate approach to the way in which we're handling BIM uh, at an agency level or a state government level. Can you give us a little bit of an explanation about what the role of the CDBB was in the UK? Yeah, sure. Um, so CDBB was set up back in 2017. It's a partnership between the University of Cambridge and one of our government departments, uh, Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. And it was about allowing the built environment to become digitally transformed. So it was everything from BIM through to a national digital twin program, looking at the digital technologies that we have, looking at what changes we needed to make, supporting adoption and looking to the future. It's a positive thing because it's at that national level, right? Whereas you're just starting your tour here of Australia and over the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear all these different stories. What lessons could be learnt by our Australian counterparts? What really should happen? Should there, should there be a national level um, approach to this? And, and that could, I guess that could come from you as well, Mark, either of you in terms of what your thoughts are on this because I think from my perspective, I think this is the, the biggest problem we have here in Australia. I think we have a lot of smarts and you've already talked about some of the experiences you've had already in terms of seeing some of the projects that have been delivered here in Australia. They're kind of like little isolated weeds in a, in a field or or could we just say well, we won't call them weeds because they're good let's call them you know little specks of gold in other words a barren desert how can we put a magnet in there to, to draw all this together if i can answer that because i'm gonna well and truly embarrass <laughs> alexandra now um i mean it uh, the answer is leadership it's as simple as that. Um, what uh, Alexandra and the rest of the team over at CDBB and Mark Enzer from you know, Mott McDonald's and, and their, their role, they brought a lot of us together and got us to communicate together in a sensible way that gave a very much unified industry approach. Uh, and with that strong leadership, I believe that that's, was a major catalyst of us all working together and providing. And to go back to your original question of well, what could you do as a, as a country, I will you know, state openly to you, I believe that the one thing Australia could do to progress itself, especially with the, the work you've got, is uh, a digital task force, a leadership group uh, at you know, the highest level possible, just um, to use a, a, maybe a local phrase, herding the cats together and getting everybody on the same train going in the same, same direction and actually really bring it uh, bring it home, and especially some of the projects you've got to deliver and the focus it's going to be on you in the next 10 years. Now, sorry, Alexandra, go. I was just going to say I agree entirely. It's about that boundary-spanning visionary leadership. You need it to convene, connect and coordinate. It's not about command and control. It's about bringing everybody together because there's some really awesome stuff happening in Australia. We've been here three days, four three days working. We've seen some amazing projects, but bringing them all together so that everybody can work together that's what's needed, and it, it is that umbrella leadership 
that I, I would, like Mark, suggest um, absolutely is needed to make this happen. And I must admit, you know, some, you know, just being here in Brisbane, I know, as, as you said, it's our starting point. You know, we've had our eyes open already by some of the projects and some of the, again, leadership. You've got you know, the Cross River Rail project here in the centre of town. And that really, when you go to the Experience Centre and you see what's being achieved and the aspirations are being achieved, you really are at the forefront of, of where you need to be. I just hope, as you said, that's all projects and not just one project. Yeah, it's it's one of those things from my perspective and I think one of the things that stood out from the presentation earlier today that you gave part of our Brisbane event was in regards to this concept of all of these digital twins eventually communicating with one another. Now, the challenge once again here in Australia is that we might have these wonderful standout projects as these little, you know, little gold specks in the desert the challenge that we face then, all of them are going to be possibly very high-end, high-standard projects. Are there standards being developed out of the UK or internationally about data standards for these digital tin twins to actually connect together? I know obviously Building Smart has a role to play with interoperability, but it's not bridging as far, I think, as the digital twin realm at this stage. There is, a, I believe, an international group for the ISO for digital twins and they're working strongly on what the standards should be for digital twins. But this interoperability piece, as you say, is key. And there are various groups, Mark will tell you more, um, he's involved in one of them, who are working to make sure that we can be interoperable. But even if we start connecting those few specks of gold, we won't connect everything at one stage. Just start with maybe just get two of them connected, then add a third, then add a fourth. We will eventually get there. Yeah, it's not going to be something that happens overnight, but it's a matter of kind of one of the things that we talk a lot about or, or I got drilled into me through my architectural career is a, the methodology of briefing with clients and, first of all, building a foundation and starting with a foundation of where you're wanting to go. So once you've got that kind of foundation, the foundation normally would be, here I have, I want a school. So you know you want a school that needs to be on that site. Then the next level is how many buildings do you want? How much area do you need? So the challenge we have at the moment is with digital twins moving at this pace that we're moving at all individually is that they're going to almost be too far down the track in some ways to kind of rein them back into so that we can get that standardisation. And that's the, the biggest fear I have. Thankfully here in Australia, we're a little bit slower <laughs> and we're nowhere near it yet. But that's the kind of challenges I think that I, that I think the industry will face in that next phase because of without the standardisation of information, it means that we're going to have kind of a lot of mapping to do in the middle. Which is why we need that leadership. It's why it's absolutely vital. And from my perspective, is that what has that helped a substantial way in the UK by having that Centre of Digital Built Britain there, providing that centralised leadership, providing that guidance and the, the volume of, of guidance material that's come through obviously paid employees but also through the volunteership of industry is in, incredible. But is, is that the difference to trying to get this moving forward? Is that Maybe that's what we're, maybe that's the answer to, in Australia to actually fixing things where we are and moving it forward. Yeah, I mean, I say there's one thing there and not to pull you up. It's you say, you said industry, a lot of the people, the, the, the new strategy board that I sit on, which is the sort of the, the follow on from the great word, Alexandra, it's not just industry. We've now got finance there, which is the first time we've actually included and they are giving leadership as well. 
you know, they, with the, the ESG requirements I mentioned earlier, they have their own stipulation of rules and regulations. So unless we bring everybody together, unless we uh, bring that communication and common way of thinking, we could all end up going all over the place. You know, if finance X, you know, asks for X, and we as an industry only are able to provide Y, do we create a bottleneck about future projects and investment till we come up to speed? So the one thing to, to answer your question, and succinctly I hope, is you need to bring those leaders together, get those leaders on the same page and produce a mindset, and whether that's standards, whether that's rules, or whether just simple communication, that will help your progress forward. And if you don't do that, that's where the problem will become even bigger. Well, that's where it's interesting on that finance perspective because money is king, right? So the way in which we're probably, as I said in, in our in our Q&A earlier today about the, the concepts that we're essentially in the real estate industry and in the real estate industry is what we're part of in terms of generating value in assets. As an industry, then let's look at the consulting and construction side of things. Maybe we're maybe we're just sitting back here and waiting because the finance guys don't know about it yet. Every single time I've worked on projects that receive government funding, there's an acquittal process. You must provide this information and in to get through these gates. Now that could be the driver. The the finance industry could actually be the transition between and actually tying this all together because the finances actually have quite rigid and stringent ways in which they want information delivered. So maybe that's the answer. I mean, we're both lucky. We both worked in, in finance uh, during our career. So we had that mindset. And I'll provide a copy of the paper to you or a link that you can include in the podcast. But it is very much, you know, the driver of, and one of the, the, the key things that really stood out for myself as part of the, the interviews. And we interviewed 35 banks, by the way. We didn't just, it wasn't a handful. It wasn't just a pick and choose. No, and they were global. They were not just UK. Uh, there was a couple of your own homegrown investors in, in that list as well. Was, you know, on a simple credit request or, or credit interview at a, what is a perceived relatively it's a large number for most, but for construction, a low number of 250 million. They were expecting a digital roadmap of the asset. Now, one of the meetings we've had already, uh, they've actually <laughs> verified that themselves and said, yeah, we're speaking to pension companies who want to know about the digital twins. So it has landed on your shores. It, it is going to be coming up your beaches and you are going to be faced with that a problem but what I would also say you know now with the data collection it's going to open a lot of avenues for a lot of businesses uh, consultants especially because that data that's collected is going to need managed I will say one thing that data needs to be owned by the asset owner but they don't necessarily need to manage the data there is now going to be a complete new stream of employment and revenue for a lot of practices about managing data and providing insights from that data yeah and the the key thing being at this point in time and i think the the challenge that we face is is that people kind of had their eyes closed to this whole thing and it, it <laughs> It's, it's almost like I kind of feel like we're wandering the woods here in Australia <laughs> and maybe it's because we're such a broad country compared to the UK and everyone's a lot more closer and you've got to double the population or something like that. Or maybe that the English, the English I do believe, do like standards. 
and Australia kind of like to um, just all make up their own standards. So that's the problem. I actually like I actually like the 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 English approach to this compared to everyone in Australia going. I'm going to do it my way. Progressively, I'm hoping that you know more and more conversations. But it might be the fact that, as I said, I reckon it's the finance guys that might actually do it. But it's good to see, as you said from your earlier meeting, that a major financier through a superannuation fund is starting to push that agenda niche, which then starts to creep through because they're in Australia. That's basically one of our biggest, outside of government, that's our biggest kind of in, in investor in, in infrastructure. And sort of also coming at the other end of the spectrum, you've got your finance asking for that information up front to be part of your, your credit agreement and part of your, your stipulations there. But most of these finance and pension companies are part of an insurance group or have an insurance group arm. So at the other end of the spectrum, you'll then suddenly get the insurance guys going, actually, we need to reduce our risk and liability. And to reduce our risk and liability, we need the following data. So it actually will become what I would call a full through life process where you need this data at the beginning, well done, congratulations, you've finished the project in the delivery aspect. Now we're into that 80% of, of cost during the actual asset management. And, and as we, as resources grow uh, thinner on the ground and as money is maybe not as readily available and certainly not as cheap as before, we're going to actually see the extension of life of assets. And to extend that life of assets is going to mean even greater insurance policies, so an even greater demand on, on data. Now, here in Australia, we have seen a couple of projects that are done as a PPP, so public-private par- public partnership. Now, I've interviewed in the past a couple of people I think it was I can't remember who we worked for at the time now and that's so bad because it was a couple of years ago but in that arrangement it's obviously in the interest of the of the company that's built it and managing and maintaining it where preventative maintenance kicks in so that data is of great use so then they're finding value in it but then once again you're still struggling to get that government push and, and bite on it. Oh, Mr. Mayor, I, well, I'll answer this and then I'll hand it to, to yourself. It's just going back to the statement I said earlier, there's going to be a shortage of cheap money. We've, we've seen it. You know, The UK is facing inflation figures that, that frighten me, to be really honest with you. Uh, you know, not only with the inflation and, and forthcoming or the increases in, in fuel, you know, that means government has less to spend and therefore they are going to be looking. You look at some of the, the projects that are going on now in the UK, uh, I think the the one is obviously the nuclear power, where yes, at the moment there's talks that the government will cover 50% of the design fees while they're looking for investors. And once they have that investorship, it will drop down to 20% government, 20% EDF, and 20% of the rest will be in the marketplace. So the marketplace will actually drive government as well because they're going to demand the data. So if government want the funds, they've got to give the data as part of the contract. Now, one of the other things that you mentioned as well, Alexandra, today was regards to, and, and, and I guess I'm delving kind of, I guess, a bit further into the digital twin world or the value of information. How valuable is information moving forward now, you know, we're, we're for physical asset owners? Information is valuable in a number of ways. 
it's valuable because it allows us to make the decisions for the outcomes that we want. And going back to the finance question, you've got the financiers at one end driving for the outcomes that are needed. The digital twin or the information management is merely a tool to get those outcomes. And we, we need to remember it. It's not a means to an end in itself. But we're seeing that data itself has value. We're seeing companies value their assets. And one of the big infrastructure owners in the UK looked at their assets and found out that their data is worth about a third of the value of the, the whole um, firm. So, you know, 50% of the physical value is what the data value comes to. So as I say, a third of the total. So that's really encouraging. But we also had some work that so was commissioned through KPMG, and they're saying for every pound you invest in information management, and they were looking just at BIM and slightly beyond, you get about 15 pounds of savings, and you also get an about three pounds 70 of GDP improvement over 30 years. It's a pretty good ROI. It's very high. Now, so so basically what that's saying is it's instead of continuing and doing business as usual like we are now where a client really here in Australia doesn't take much interest in the information they get delivered at handover at completion. Their interest is purely, I want to get this building delivered. You hand over these these manuals in PDF form, however they say see they see fit. And sadly, this is an audio podcast and you can't see the smirk on Alexandra's face as I say this because that's exactly what happens here in Australia. Nathan, it's what happens everywhere. Yeah. It's not just in Australia, it happens all over the world. All right. Well, I'm being a bit pessimistic about Australia. It's only because of some of the content that I see coming from the UK through my colleagues that I that I see how far we are from that kind of place. And if KPMG are identifying those potential savings in where the UK are at at the moment, then it, it just kind of, I still see we're five years away from it, even 10 sometimes because of that kind of lagged approach. Taking a step back from, I guess, that detail into the value of data, and I want to kind of pull back to some of the key things. So we, we started to talk about the Centre of Digital Built Britain and and the benefits of how it sat centred as a central kind of place in the UK. What would be probably, and I, I, I always like to kind of look at both sides of the coin because in this world we want to try and learn from other people's mistakes rather than make the same mistakes. And I'll, and I'll frame it in the positive before I go to the negative because, you know, we've got to kind of have a bit of both. But, I, well, maybe the benefit, maybe the positive was exactly what you just talked about. So Centre of Digital Built Britain put together a framework you're now seeing reports from KPMG that are delivering those savings. That would probably be the ultimate benefit of what you could say, the, the work that you've done over the last five years. I would say the benefit was creating that collaboration so we could move the industry forward. Um, I think without the centre, there would have been pockets of exceptional work happening, but it wouldn't have been joined up. So we wouldn't have got uh, quite the outcomes that, that we did. And it was about having that really wide um, embracing of the industry. I think Mark mentioned the, or maybe maybe it was you, Nathan, mentioned the Gemini program. So all the all the pro bono work was done. People, people joined, put in effort, some really fantastic work. And that working together, that collaboration over this sort of connect, coordinating, convening leadership worked really well. So that would be my my positive and the outcomes that came from that. The the thing that um, the thing that I wish had happened was that there was another five years. Not for me personally, although I would love to have stayed on, it would have been great. But there's more work to be done and we need to collaborate. And we now no longer have that overarching umbrella. And I'm hoping 
that people will still continue to work together, but we don't have that formally anymore. So, so that's a that's a, a biggest challenge with all of this is with any government led programs, they have this concept that you'll be able to achieve things in a certain time, and then they can just tick a box and move on. Whereas, essentially, what you've done is you've kind of set up the foundation or the platform for industry to move forward. And without that guidance and continued support that would be ideal from another five years or 10, then essentially that's where the lacking or where the the negative is in terms of what could be the next best step, which it's, it's, it's kind of a similar approach here where here in Queensland particularly there was a, a strong push with the, the digital enablement policy uh, a couple of years ago and it's kind of staggered and, 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 and gone slow. Now, that's big challenges because politically we've had major cyclones come through, we've had major floods. Um, you, you'd be surprised to know that in, in January this, this year, half of Brisbane was underwater, <laughs> um, a capital city, a major capital city underwater. And the focus of the politics and the, and the finances have all, have all dragged over to there. And it's always been driven, I think, because of the fear of, as a politician, if I back this and it fails, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose my job. Mm. Whereas, and and the challenge we face here is that, how good would it be if they actually recognised that what we're talking about here is just common sense? It- I, I think it's about helping people to understand that it's not about a piece of tech. It's not about a piece of IT. It's about a tool that will allow you to create the outcomes that you want. So if there had been a digital twin of Brisbane, there would have been a much better understanding of what the effects of a flood might be, how to mitigate that, and when it happened, being able to get back on your feet more quickly. So it's about explaining that it is about those outcomes and that ability to make decisions quickly and correctly rather than the tech itself. I was just going to add to that, exactly that answer, but if to break it down to a smaller level, what we're seeing a lot more of, uh, a tender stage, to be honest with you, but let's see if we can stick in construction, is dress rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Now, you can do that at crisis management level, you know, digital twin of the city, as, Alexa, as Alexandra aptly said, there's, you know, the, that water level rises and, and some of the points we were shown on, on, our, on our tour was quite scary how, how high the water got. Um, you know, you can prepare for that. Now, to bring that into day-to-day life and context, I know some of the projects in the UK are using 4D, 5D simulation to work out delivery times and delivery loads of vehicles arriving in a site. And one of the pieces of software that we use is Synchro. It's been heavily used through the COVID aspect to remove double handling of materials and also work on that delivery. You've got a very small site in an extremely built up area. You have to do managed traffic flow. But what's also uh, quite interesting is the, the materials were needed in a certain process of time. So actually, lorry B arriving before lorry A caused a major problem on site. So actually, you worked it out that you know, everything came through on a stage time, process was done, is the crane in the right place to lift and move and all that. You can take that at a smaller level of a site management and delivery to a, right up to a citywide management of a major crisis like you had here in January, February. I think that if you 
delve over and jump over the ditch over to Christchurch and the major earthquakes they had there about a decade ago, because the whole city was levelled, they did something similar to that where they were managing concrete pours because all the streets were damaged and they had to basically manage all all of the deliveries for the whole of the city and time the building and construction of the whole city because otherwise there wouldn't be adequate space in the city to actually achieve it. Yeah. Which is which is which is kind of it's it's good that we can do those sorts of things. But it goes back to as you said earlier, process, system, outcome. So your process and the system and your outcome what mixed together will give you the result that you need, not the result that may happen. So with the introduction of BIM, we've seen like a significant improvement in the communication of design. So in many ways, we've moved away from the, the concept of 2D drawings that can only be under can only be really understood by a small number of people. So we've moved through that. Now we're now we're assisting our clients, our contractors, our subcontractors with VR and augmented reality environments. So they can we can enable that communication. So it means more people can participate in that, in that kind of understanding what's going on and that would have been what you experienced with the Cross River Isle Experience Centre where they have all that in place. Now, um, this is my favourite question to ask you guys, but is a digital twin or a form of a digital twin a uh, a, a new interface or, or a fancy new name for building management systems or our, uh, our preventative maintenance systems? So a digital twin... We'll take data from a large number of sources, run simulations, models, gain insights, and produce actions that are put into the real world. So it needs to be getting data from the BIM models, but from sensors around the building, but from the outside as well, from people walking through, from their mobile phones. So it's bigger than a building management system, and it, it's, it can be more complex. There are some very simple digital twins. A building management system can offer some of the data up to a digital twin, but in itself, I wouldn't say it was a digital twin. The, the richer the twin, the greater the insight. Now, data will not help you predict the future. It'll actually help you flatten it out. So the peaks and troughs will become softer, and knowledge dramatic. Um, by the use of of that data and therefore as Alexandra says it's far more than just a simple asset management or digital system Uh, it's a really enriched enclave of of information. Now having you here in Australia makes me happy and sad. (laughs) Happy because you're really nice people. (laughs) (laughs) Happy because you have obviously really um, strong experience and, and good stories to share. But the thing that I hate the most is that you'll be presenting to people that are, uh, what can I say, easily influenced and nowhere near the maturity that they should be on their journey. Um, and I've seen this over many years where a uh, an, an, an inexperienced person will attend a, a seminar like they have today and, and have inspiring speakers like yourselves talking to them and talking about the opportunities of the future. The problem is is that most of them haven't even got standardised naming conventions. So we go back a decade to BS 1192 with standardised naming conventions and common data environments. They haven't got them yet. Yet tomorrow they'll go back to their office and they'll talk about 
oh, I want to get a digital twin. Give me it. And, they, and yet they haven't even taken that first step. They're, they're running a marathon before they've even taken, even, even learned how to crawl. What would be the steps that you'd suggest? And I, I might ask both of you this question because I, I want to get both kind of perspectives on it. What would be your suggestion on the steps that people that were highly inspired by the opportunities that, that you've talked about, digital twins, what, what they can do for their organisation, what how that can help them? If they've if they haven't begun their BIM journey yet, what would you th- what would you suggest the steps that you take? Well, I'm going to just use your analogy back at you, I think, which is that if you want to run a marathon, you need to think about your training plan. You need to think about how you how you're going to train, where you're going to train, what you're going to do. But if you're just crawling, you need to start crawling. So you can be crawling, thinking about your marathon. So you can do both at the same time. It's not an either or. So Work in the building information modeling space. Get your naming conventions sorted. Look at the international standards. See how you can apply them to your work right now. But at the same time, think about the future. Think about your roadmap for your digital twin. Think about what steps you'd need to go along the way. It's a huge continuum from CAD that we had back in the 80s through to ecosystem of connected digital twins. And you can bizarrely be at several points on the journey at the same stage. That would be my answer. I like that one. You wouldn't know it. I'm an I'm an Ironman triathlete. <laughs> I've put on 40 kilos since, but yes, no, there was a training plan behind it. So, no, it's it's perfect. You if you have a plan and you and you map it out, you do begin that. But the challenge is, is everyone gets excited. They want to they want that straight away, and they don't they they just need to talk to someone and know. And that's what that leadership's for. That leadership to set out the roadmap. It's really important that leadership has a coherent narrative and a coherent roadmap that everybody can get involved in. And people will pop into different bits of the roadmap at different times, but to have that down there so everybody can see where we're hoping to go and how we're hoping to get there make a massive difference. The only bit I would add to that, you know, full agreement, is communicate and communicate it. Communicate what your roadmap is at the beginning. Communicate your desire where it is. And we, yeah, we've all worked on big projects and we've seen the, the stage gates of a project and how they're communicated. You need to communicate that on your journey, not only with inside your team, but with the wider market, because the more understanding, and as you said earlier about the, the Cross River Rail experience, you know, imagine being a, a ground worker on that on day one. And all you're doing is digging one of the holes for the shafts, but by able to going in and seeing what the the outcome is, the knowledge, the experience, the passion that then suddenly grows with inside the individual. So as a project, you should be communicating where you are, how you're going, how you're getting on. And I think too often as well, we're overcritical. Uh, where we'll say, we'll we'll deliver a big job, we'll look back at it and go, those decisions were wrong or whatever. I'm not saying every job is, is, is not perfect. There's obviously a lot of imperfect delivery of projects these days. But where what we're tending to do as technology moves so quickly, is scrutinizing decisions that were made five years ago on the technology that's available today. You look at the short period of a of an iPhone, of what the first iPhone was to the iPhone now, and you compare that to a, a project. 
you know, what we should be doing is looking at what decisions were made and how we can improve those decisions, make them quicker, make them smarter, make them more desirable for an outcome, and actually picking the ball up and moving it forward than actually sort of taking it back. So we've talked about the concepts of, of making a plan. So people listening today, please make a plan. Don't just jump straight into it. Now, one of the key things is about communication. Now, one of the biggest failures that, we, that I've found here in Australia with the implementation is the massive amount of change management that's required around this. Now, the sad thing about it is, is that when we look at change management, it's basically effective communication and engagement with people so that they all feel part of the process. In the UK, did, were there strategies? Obviously, there was so much, there's, there's oodles of publications that CDBB put out. But outside of that, is there any other infrastructure in place in the UK to assist in that change management realm? So within CDBB, we had a very good in engagement team who made sure that we brought in people to learn from them and to speak with them. Um, there are other groups within the UK that are doing similar things. Um, which is great. It's really good to have that. And I see similar sort of groups in, in the UK. We've just been speaking at Brisbane, and that would be one of the groups that, um, you know, we can talk to them. They can talk with us. We can all share our experiences. We can all learn. That's really important. The positive is, is the people in the room. It's the ones that aren't in the room, well, which where the industry is a lot broader and how yeah. And and they're the challenges in terms of it's not waste the luddites trying to trying to find ways in which we can adjust our communication methodologies to yeah. to to recognise as you said earlier that it isn't separate. I think I mean one of the great things that Alexandra and the team did they they spoke and I forgive the phrase but they spoke for the common man as they're producing a constant stream of high level academia. They actually produced bite-sized pieces, and I, you know, had to change my own style of working to actually accommodate these ability to to get a wider message out to a bigger public. And I think this is one of the joys why, why Bentley got behind these knowledge tools, especially now that you know, we are seeing a, a flake glimmer of light at the end of COVID, of getting out and explaining about projects, mm. you know, and that leadership aspect there. But yeah, I would definitely say. Good, simple, straightforward, honest communication. Yeah, I've never met an Australian yet who isn't able to give me a straight answer about sport, especially. <laughs> um, so yeah, you put that into your mythology of producing uh, literature about your projects. You should bring people along leaps and bounds. If, if only digital twins were as simple as sport. <laughs> we won't get onto the ashes though. But <laughs> so moving on to education. Here in Australia, we also have a lack of education, I'd say, throughout the um, university systems. Today, obviously, we're sitting here at Bond University uh, undertaking this interview. So so here in Australia, the, the main courses in architecture, engineering, construction management have like one subject on BIM. It's not part, it's, it's always seen as separate to all of this. And there are some universities that have some teachings now, the challenge we have is that's the up-and-coming new generation. There's no infrastructure or training really in place for people that are in industry right now that's large enough because we're talking in Australia, the construction industry has a couple of million people that are interacting in it. 
in the UK, Centre Digital built Britain can't do everything. But was is there or was there a kind of a, a structure behind the education for existing companies, existing businesses outside of kind of the guidance documents that, that were authored? So education came up in virtually every single conversation we had. It's part of this socio-technical change program. You know, we've been saying there's not just about the tech, it's about lots of other things, and education's absolutely one. Um, as you say, there are various documents authored about the skills shortage. Certainly there's been work done with universities. There's some work around um, digital apprenticeships. And there's um, becoming more and more, we're seeing reverse mentoring. So people who have significant time served in construction and built environment companies, who perhaps don't have the digital skills, working with digital natives who've come up playing Minecraft are very able to use those sort of tools. The person with more time served knows a lot about the industry and gives that information to the person who's just come out of uni. And that person will in turn mentor the more senior person in digital skills. And that has fantastic benefits for the company as well. It sort of breaks down those hierarchical walls and allows both parties to feel a real pride in the knowledge that they have and to feel valued. We won't see that here, I don't think, in the near future. It's one of the things I've found with the older generation here in Australia is that they don't want to feel irrelevant anymore. So they, that's, why they, that's why they're reluctant to change. And, and that comes down to that whole communication piece about the language isn't being used right about helping people that are senior in their career right now about how if you embrace this, this will be a change, whereas it, that's why they're fighting it. Oh, so I mean, it's not just your own problem. We've got a problem in the UK of, of a lot of staff, a lot of senior people, uh, and, and I mean also senior in, in experience leaving the industry. Um, so you know, it, this time is now to grab them, and and you can't you can't read experience. You can't get it from a textbook, and also that self worth, as you said there, they don't want to become irrelevant. You you give a gentleman who's worked on major projects for all of his life, you give him ten people to to mentor, you see the shoulders go back, you see the head go high, you see that self-worth. Yeah. yeah. So it is you know done properly under again strong leadership, strong direction. And again I think that should be a national program of uh, of experience because while it's gone, it's gone. And it's a long way a road ahead and there are some initiatives that I'm part of that hopefully might assist in helping both ends because the, the, the lack of experience from students leaving university and trying to enter industry, there's a gap because there's only so much universities can teach and then there's also a huge gap, I personally believe, here in Australia in the C-suite level. All of the owners of these consulting cities are basically employing people and, and holding their own businesses in their hands rather than becoming knowledgeable enough to enter contracts knowing what they're going to be actually delivering. Yeah. Is that happening in the UK or, or the C-suites within the, these practices and construction firms actually have enough knowledge and awareness of what they're getting into? Certainly I've worked with some very well-informed, very well-educated, very digital C-suite um, people within the UK. So um, from my experience there are um, definitely some people who are really switched on to digital and how digital can help their firms. So we've got the bleeding edge essentially it must be. So you're always in the right room with the right people. That's what I often think. And and I because you see there's other reports that have come out of Australia and, I'm, and I might flick it to you afterwards about um, so 
looking at um, individual houses and medium density to unit blocks housing done out of New South Wales because of there's been substantial issues with construction defects and the roadmap for digital mm-hmm. for those that large percentage of constructors and contractors and designers they're so far behind <laughs> where we could where everyone could benefit from yeah, yeah. but again it, I mean, I've come up through the ranks so to speak um, I uh, it is yeah, once you've been cold, wet and miserable on site, you learn not to be cold, wet and miserable on site very, very quickly. Um, and I was going to make a reference to your new series, The Block, that I've become addicted <laughs> to, but I'll, I'll draw that line quite quickly. But it is, you've got to uh, look at being uh, all-encompassing, inclusivity. You know, you've got people who have that experience at all levels and make sure they get to senior positions in the business because they will, with the experience they've got, be able to manage risk far better than some others in the business. So, yeah, don't don't sort of just let the, the acronyms and the win over the day. Make sure there's some good uh, common sense involved. So, so we've covered off on... The Centre of Digital Built Britain. We've talked a little bit about digital twins, but not too much today. And we talked about the people and the communication. Now, I just want to touch on the technology just quickly because when we look at when we look at the kind of spectrum of things we have to deal with, we have to standards, process, people, and technology. And do you feel, Mark, at this point in time, technology is aiding us or hindering us on our journey to achieving this utopia? I would definitely say aiding. The, 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 the where it may be causing problems is, is this, as you identified earlier, the skills gap. You know, never mind drinking from, as I said, you know, the, the analogy I, I made earlier, one of the projects I started, the iPhone wasn't available. Now the iPhone, the project is finished and the iPhone can do everything, do, do everything you know, from, from watching TV on it to, to doing li- LiDAR. That sort of technology is available, ready to available. I mean, as I said, in your hand available. And it's that skill set that needs to go with it that may be causing the problem and bringing people along. Because the tap has been turned on and the tap over the next couple of years will go from being a tap to a fire hose. It's just going to get quicker. It's just going to get faster. It's just going to have a, a stronger process, a quicker ability. Uh, I mean, we joked yesterday about doing work where you left the computer on to do the render, and so you came back in the morning and the render was done. Now it's doing it far, far quicker. Oh, oh yes. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a thing that helps my business out quite a lot, the ability for things to render quite quickly within like five seconds and yeah. you're just like, yep. It's a huge difference. So it's good to see from that perspective. But um, Alexander and Mark, thank you very much for your time today. And I know that we probably didn't cover off on half the things we could have talked about, but we could have talked for hours and hours and hours. So might might have 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 to get you on the podcast again sometime in the future, maybe on your next trip. Maybe you have to come to Australia just to do this because the technology broke down and, and we can't do it over the internet. But this one might be an interesting question for you because you guys are so far into the future in the UK. But it's one of these questions I ask in all of my podcast guests, so you have to join in. Um, I have one final question for you, and and it's the one question I ask all of my guests. Alexandra, what does BIM mean to you? BIM for me is a process for information management that is a really good foundational step to allow us to make better decisions for better outcomes. 
Perfect. Mark, any your thoughts? Bim, for me, is an essential cog to delivering a digital twin. It's not the be end and end all, but it's really this one of the key parts that's required to deliver that twin and to deliver that future. Wonderful. I think both those comments are, are well up there in terms of what I would have hoped and expected from you. But thanks once again for your time today, Alexander and Mark. Thanks. Our pleasure. For more information on Alexander and Mark, please head over to the podcast section of the Skewed website for further reading. I look forward to sharing our next podcast with you in a fortnight's time. Until then, good luck with your digital transition powered by Bond University's Building Information Modelling Program. Digital transition.